0: All right, good morning. morning. Welcome to Calvary the Hill. Um, Go ahead and grab a Bible. There's one in front of you if you don't have your own. Uh, We'll be in Ephesians chapter 5. Check, check. Uh, Page 978 if you're using the Bible in front of you. Ephesians chapter 5. All right, uh, yes, here we are. Welcome, uh, it's good to be here with you guys. Um, we, we all love a good love story, don't we? Most of us. Anna and I just watched uh, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, <laughs> which it's, it's pretty good. Um, it's just, you know, it's one of those. Uh, It's right there with uh, Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail of the top 1990s rom-com genre. Um, A lot of you watched a rom-com that just came out yesterday called Scoreless in Seattle. Uh, Sorry. The Mariner game. Mariner game joke. That's what they were calling it, for 17 innings. Scoreless in Seattle. These TBS commentators, they just can't help themselves with the Sleepless in Seattle reference. Um, but that was sad, so yes, I'm sorry. That was actually the only game I watched this year. <laughs> so that, for that, I am sorry. Yeah. It's just, it's really sad, actually. Um, okay, so in my wife and I, we have our own love story. Uh, We met in the year 2007 at Dick's Drive-In over in Lower Queen Anne, the first Dick's Drive-In ever. Trivia there for you. But it wasn't just two people meeting at Dick's Drive-In. We were a part of a freshman orientation weekend for Seattle Pacific University, and we met at Dick's Drive-In. So romantic. Uh, We started off as friends. Uh, I had a crush on a, a girl at another school, And she had a crush on me, so, you know, there's that thing. Uh, But we're in the same friend group, so we're hanging out all the time. And over the course of maybe six months, I finally realized, ding, ding, you have a crush on this person right in front of you. She's amazing. And so I finally kind of admitted that to myself. And so we started dating right at the end of our freshman year of college. But it was rocky, It took about four years for me to wise up and marry this girl Uh, and I was battling all sorts of personal fears, insecurities, all sorts of stuff, but through the ups and the downs, Anna stuck with me, she stuck it out, and eventually we married right after my victory lap of college in 2012. That's our love story, and we all love a good love story, right? We just can't help ourselves. From Jane Eyre to Pride and Prejudice to The Christmas Prince on Netflix, as long as Netflix keeps churning out these B-level rom-coms, we're gonna watch them. We're just gonna do it, because we are human beings. Why? Why? Is it because romantic love is the culmination of the human experience? That's what our culture would tell you. But in today's passage, Paul makes a surprising claim. He says, no, romantic love is not the pinnacle of the human experience, but it is the picture of how God wants us to understand his love for us. So whether you're unhappily or happily married, unhappily or happily single, this passage is for you. Because God's love is for you. So we're going to be sort of officially in Ephesians 5 verses 31 to 33. But we're going to backtrack a little bit so we can get a bigger picture. We're going to go all the way back to verse 21. So let's take a look. Paul writes, well, I'm going to go back a little further. Uh, in verse 18, he, he says, be filled with the Spirit. And then he starts to list off ways that the church can be filled with the Spirit and look like it. And at the end there, in verse 21, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ or out of the fear of Christ. And diving into verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word. I pray that your word would do the heavy lifting this morning. I pray that through your word and through your spirit you would break down the walls of our hard hearts, Lord, and fill them with good news replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Replace our hard barriers that we've put up to you and make a way by your spirit in, in the only way that he can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we're in the second week of this series that's called Redeemed Vocation, How Christ Reshapes Society. Last week we take we took a look at marriage in light of Christ, and this week we're gonna flip that. We're going to look at Christ in light of marriage. So Paul here, starting in verse 22, has started what is called a household code. And where he describes what a spirit-filled Christian community looks like. And he started describing it back in verse 19. You know, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody, giving thanks for Everything and then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So within this broader community context, Paul then in verse 22, he starts zeroing in on a couple specific categories of relationships. So he starts with wives and husbands, and then he moves on. Next week we'll look at children and parents, and that'll be Pastor Richard is going to give that message. And then lastly, slaves and masters, and we'll cover that in two weeks. So these categories make up the building blocks of society at that time, the most important and daily intimate relationships. And the thought was in ancient times, how do we make change in society? You know, how do we, how do we uh, lead in a way that actually affects change across uh, neighborhoods, across cities, across boundary lines, how about we hone in on these specific categories of relationship that basically are the beating heart of society and then let change ripple out from there. So Paul kind of takes the same tactic. He takes a cue from that and he zeroes zeroes in on these key relationships. You know, not all of us are married, but all of us have these day-to-day high-stakes relationships where the gospel needs to come to bear. So, here this week, we're, we're taking a, a kind of a detour. It's a little bit of a step back. And it's because we, we sort of have to. And the reason I say that is because this whole passage, verses 22 to 33, it's 12 verses long, but 11 times Paul mentions or refers to Christ. 11 out of 12 verses are basically elevating Christ in this passage. So he he mentions Jesus so many times in this passage that we need to take a pause and say, why? What is Paul saying here? He's not just interested in giving marriage advice or even Christian marriage advice. He's interested in telling us a love story. Not your love story. God's love story to you. He says, in essence, You want marriage advice? Let me tell you about a love-struck man named Jesus. What is Paul saying here? Is he saying that the story of Jesus is good marriage advice? Yes, he is. We looked at that last week. But that's not all he's saying. Paul is saying that love itself, including romantic love, between two human beings tells a deeper story it tells a deeper truth here god through paul is claiming every love story under his bigger umbrella love story that he has himself what we're looking at this morning is not just for married couples do you yearn for intimacy perhaps you're in a marriage that lacks intimacy Are you single and longing for an intimacy that you've only read about or heard about or watched about? Are you enjoying a season of true intimacy with someone you love? Or have you given up on love? Paul is telling us that every love story ever told is a mere shadow of the love story that exists between God and human beings. We're gonna look at three things this morning. Firstly, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good marriage advice. It is. So we'll we'll kind of look at that again in a, with fresh eyes. But second, and even deeper than that, love stories as a category. They are all pointing to an ultimate love story, which is the gospel. And thirdly, this love story, this gospel, this good news, this Proposal is for everyone. Because everyone is looking for a love like this. All right, so the gospel is is good advice for love. We covered this last week, but let's, let's summarize it. Let's see if we remember. So in summary, through the example and story of Jesus, woven throughout these 12 verses, Paul, what does he do? How does he instruct married couples? Well, he instructs wives, as we see there in verse 22, right off the bat, to submit to their own husbands. And what does this mean? Last week, we learned that what this means is wives need to acknowledge the God-given responsibility that he has placed on her husband to love and to lead her. She is to willingly and intentionally, on purpose, place herself under that authority, under that responsibility, under that loving care that he is to provide. And then he caps it off there in in verse 33. He says, the wife, see to it that she respects her husband. And this is going to be a little uncomfortable because the word there is fear. And it's the same word that Paul used in verse 21 when he said to the whole community, submit to one another out of the fear of Christ. And then he caps it off in verse 33 and says, wives, see that you fear your husband. Does this mean that our wives are supposed to be afraid of us? No, because we saw that the love that the husband is to show is is the love that Christ has shown the church. Are we afraid of Jesus Christ? Not at all. So what does it mean? It's It's an office. So just as the whole community submits to one another under the fear of Christ, wives submit to their husbands under the under the fear of Christ. And the husband is the head of the wife. And so what it really is, is it's it's a reverence. It's an acknowledgement of the office, the responsibility that God has given to the husbands. And so doing that is a wife knowing and and embodying the fear of Christ. And so beyond that, what what this word does is, is is it sort of completes the passage. It started off with the whole community under the fear of Christ, and then it concludes here with the wives under the fear of their husbands. So, husbands, what did we learn last week? What are they to do? Well, they are to love their wives, to lay their lives down for their wives, to nourish, to cherish, and that's actually a motherly word, both of those. Nourish, cherish, Uh, It's referred to uh, elsewhere in Scripture as something a mother does. And so we nourish and cherish our wives as we would somebody who is our very own body. You know, we're going to, you know, uh, spoiler alert, one flesh. The husbands and the wives hold fast to one another. That word is glue. It's literally glue. (laughs) And so we nourish, we cherish our wives because they are glued to us. They are us. And so to love uh, our, our wives' art is to love ourselves. So the gospel is good marriage advice. The husband reflects what Christ has done for all of us, and the wives reflect how the church honors Christ. Uh, we had a marriage seminar dinner thing a few years ago, and one of the speakers asked all of us married couples a question which felt a little bit of out of left field, um, cause I had never heard it before, but what they said was, what does the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ have to do with your marriage? And it was like, I don't know. And everything, it's sort of a, it's sort of one of those answers, Sunday school answers. But here, Paul is telling us that the death and resurrection of Jesus has everything to do with our marriages. That's a big statement. It's, it's, it's kind of like complicated and how do I connect those things? But it's worth chewing on. In some ways, this, this passage, kind of like the books of uh, Proverbs or, or Ecclesiastes or, or Job or some of these wisdom literature books, this passage in that statement is worth just chewing on for days. <laughs> what does the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ have to do with my marriage? And so, if you're married this morning, I'd encourage you to reflect on that this week. So, beyond that, deeper than that, secondly, all love stories, all marriages, all stories that illustrate love between two people, they point to the ultimate love story, which is the gospel. Let's take a, a, a quick additional glance at verses 31 and 32. Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Seriously, this is insane. What Paul is saying here is like mind blowing. And it's it's fresh. It's sort of a fresh take, and it does us. It, we sh, we would do wisely to to really see if we can get this, because it's hard to understand, and like he said, it's it's a mystery. There's a there's a mystery here, and it's worth investigating. So, some things to know. Verse thirty-one. That's a quotation, as probably many of your Bibles tell you. It's a direct quotation from Genesis 2.24. But Paul is not using this quotation from Genesis 2 in the way that we would expect him to use it. You know, he doesn't say uh, husbands should love their wives because they're their own flesh. Because it says in Genesis, therefore a husband will leave and and they'll be one flesh. That's not what he's doing here. He's using the Genesis reference to, to emphasize, to prove a different point. Take a look. What does it come right after? Right before the Genesis quote, he says, because we are members of Christ's body. And then Paul goes, do you want to know how I know that? It's because I've read my Bible. And my Bible says in Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so he's using Genesis to, to footnote, to, to cite, to prove the concept that we are members of Jesus' body. This is so fascinating because what Paul is doing here is he's taking Genesis 2.24, which doesn't mention Jesus, does it? But he's, he's putting Jesus right there. And he's using Genesis 2.24, which is the original institution of human marriage. And he's putting Jesus there. He's saying that this verse, this original OG, let's start marriage verse, before the fall, right after the creation of man and woman, God wants to bake in the heart of God for us. He basically says another reading of that verse is therefore Jesus left everything and will hold fast to the church and the two have become one. People have been debating this for centuries and I'm not going to pretend I can really get us to understand all that this means but in the very least He confirms that in some way, the very reality of human love for one another, especially romantic love, that's the reality that points to the heart of God for us. And he confirms this in verse 32. He says, this mystery is profound. Literally, that says, this is a mega mystery. The word is mega mysterion and he I'm telling you that it refers to Christ and the church. So what's mind blowing here is that God claims love. And we all want love. This is just a human reality. We want love. We know we can't buy love, but we want it. We want it so badly. And Paul is telling us here in this verse that God has claimed every single love story, every single desire for love, every yearning for love, every broken version of love for himself. And what is he doing with it? He is saying that all of those examples, every experience that you and I have had of love are just a taste, a foreshadowing, a a pointing us to something new. Bigger, deeper, and better. The, the true and the only ultimate love story. This is wild. And it's surprising. And we have to ask because, you know, what one of us has heard this proclaimed before? Is Paul off his rocker here? Is he just kind of riffing, winging it? We actually start to see elements of this picture, even in the Old Testament, let me read you a somewhat, are there any kids here? Not not really. Teenagers, we're good. Let me read you a somewhat graphic depiction of the messy but beautiful love story between God and his people, Israel, from the prophet Ezekiel. In fact, I want us all to turn to it. But keep your finger in the book of Ephesians. But go ahead and turn to the book of Ezekiel, which is after Psalms, so it's after the middle of your Bible, but before the New Testament. E-Z-E-K-I-E-L, Ezekiel. And we'll be in chapter 16. And this is writing over 500 years before Jesus Christ. And also, right around the time that Israel was deported to Babylon, sent into exile. All right, so Ezekiel chapter 16, starting in verse 1. And just a, a warning This is a little bit intense and kind of graphic, so just a heads up. Uh, It's the Bible. Uh, (laughs) Verse one. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. So this is God and Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. These are non-Israelites. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord wasn't cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you, Wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. Written repeat, I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up, and you became tall, and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness, a.k.a. proposed to you and married you. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So over 500 years before Jesus came, Ezekiel writes of the heart of God for his people. And Paul, here, in the first century is claiming here and now in this verse that everything you know about love every story you've ever heard every experience you've ever had of love is a picture of the gospel if it's a sad story of love that's only a taste sorry that's that's a, a version that will be redeemed in christ if it's a joyful and a good version of love that is only a taste of the love that is yours in Christ. So yes, the gospel is good marriage advice, but every love story is only pointing to this love story. And guess what? It doesn't matter who you are. If you're content with the versions of love that you've experienced up to now, if you're cynical about love in general, if you still think your ultimate version of love is still out there, this love story is for you. This love story is for everyone. And what's the story? It's revealed in this whole book. uh, Jesus says in John chapter 5 that every single page of this book is about him. But in our passage, we find what scholars think is actually a hymn. H-Y-M-N, a hymn. A succinct telling of this very love story. So go back to the book of Ephesians. and We're going to take a look at this love song. It starts in verse 25, second half. This is what it says. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And what's really beautiful here is this hymn, what we just read, this little story of Jesus laying himself down and what he's doing in the aftermath. We see some pretty cool parallels between this hymn and where we left Jerusalem there in the Old Testament. So you don't have to turn there this time, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish the story there for you. So God had said, I entered into a covenant with you and you became mine. And keep listening. He says, then... I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus... You were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you declares the Lord God. So here in Ezekiel And then again in in Ephesians, we see Yahweh and we see Christ. And they're doing three things that are the same things. They are sanctifying, they are cleansing, and they are clothing their people. As Yahweh selects Jerusalem while she is naked and bleeding on the road, he chooses her and enters into a covenant an exclusive relationship with her. And here we see Jesus doing the exact same thing. He sanctifies us. That word sanctify is to set apart. It's to choose out of a crowd, to place in a separate category. He chooses us for himself. Just as a husband and a wife forsake all others, Jesus has chosen us, specially, sanctified us, entered into a covenant with us. And then as Yahweh washes the blood off of Jerusalem, Christ here cleanses the church. How? Paul writes, he, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The washing of water with the word. Lots of imagery here happening. This can, and for hundreds of years, commentators have been like, baptism. But more than that, it represents something that God promised long ago also through Ezekiel. And don't, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read you kind of the, the end of the story. God says in Ezekiel 36, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you which is the gospel as proclaimed through the scriptures. God washes us clean by his Holy Spirit and he gives us a new heart, one that is attuned to his heart, one that's on the same page as his heart, one that is, that is able to do the things God has designed us to do. One that can walk in his ways. So he sanctifies us. He cleanses us. And finally, as Yahweh clothes Jerusalem with fine garments, Jesus presents the church to himself in splendor. And that word splendor, it actually can mean finely clothed. Think like a bride on her wedding day. Think white dress. Think flowers. Think Beauty beyond imagination. Why? It says, so that he can present us, where? To himself. On that day, that wedding day, Jesus acts as his own best man and he presents the church to himself. At the end of the ages, our wedding day. So the question is, This is beautiful, yeah, great, awesome. Has this happened already? Or has it not yet happened? Yes. This is, you know, many of you have have heard the sentiment. This is already, but not yet. We can experience this now, today, but we haven't yet experienced it like we will. But we can taste it. It's true. In Christ, we have been sanctified by the Spirit, cleansed by his blood, and clothed in his righteousness. But we also will be sanctified by the Spirit, cleansed and clothed on that day when we see him face to face. What we experience now is just a taste. Paul writes in another place that this is a down payment, a guarantee The Holy Spirit dwelling inside us is a down payment. It's an engagement ring saying, yeah, the whole thing hasn't finished yet, but you're wearing the ring so you know it's going to happen. That's the Holy Spirit in us. How is Christ doing this in us now? Well, it says, by the washing of water with the word. And like we read about, this is a picture, an image of the Spirit. So that he does this through the spirit and through his word. Spirit and word. The word is something we can see and look at and hold. The spirit, like Jesus said, he's like a wind. We don't know what he's going to do next. But we have both. That's why we're here right now. We're here to sit, to learn, to, to let the word of God cleanse us, clothe us. And then to allow his spirit to do what what only he can do. He's the only one who can break down a wall that you've had up for 30 years. He's the only one that can, can cleanse the shame that you carry from something that maybe was done to you. He's the only one that can convince you in your heart, not just in your head, that you've been forgiven. Because he has the, the most powerful detergent ever conceived, the blood of Christ. Do you see yourself in this love story? I want you to close your eyes for a second. Go ahead, close your eyes, and let me read a slightly edited version of this love story again to you. For God so loved this world, full of broken people, And he chose to display this love by betrothing his only son to you even before he made the world and while you were dead in your sins. He raised you to life in Christ and seated you with him next to him in the heavenly places. How? Because Jesus willingly gave himself up for you. For the joy set before him of marrying the church Marrying you, he endured what? The cross. That he might sanctify you, having cleansed you by the washing of water with the word, so that one day he will present you to himself at his wedding day in splendor, so that you, as part of his body, the church, might display the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And forever you will dwell in his presence. In the place Jesus has built with his own hands for you. And forever you will live with him. You can open your eyes. Amen? Amen. Paul feels the need to sit back and just let this love story saturate his practical instructions for daily living. Sure. That's what he wants to dwell on. And it has to do with our daily lives. It makes sense for us today as we consider these intimate human relationships we have to remember that this gospel applies not just to our first day as Jesus followers, but every day. The gospel is not Christianity one-on-one and you move on to bigger and better things. The gospel is the A to Z. The gospel is Christianity 101 and PhD postdoc work. That's, it encompasses all of it. You don't move past the gospel. You just go deeper. What does the willing death and spirit-empowered resurrection of Jesus have to do with our most cherished, messy, day-to-day relationships? That's the question. Something to chew on. If you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, this marriage proposal, this this ultimate cosmic marriage proposal is for you. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. There's someone who made you, who knew you before you were born, who formed you in your mom, someone who from eternity past made plans to propose to you. He made plans to leave heaven and all that he had and hold fast to you, to glue himself to you. Will you accept this offer? Will you say yes to this love today? Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for this love story. I pray that this this love story would would break into those areas that we have yet to let it in. That it would saturate our lives. And I want to just give you guys who don't know Jesus this morning a chance to respond to that invitation, to that proposal. So I want everyone to close your eyes and if you're someone here this morning who is on the fence, who, who maybe you're here because you're just kind of here and someone brought you, someone invited you, you're here because there's, there's a kind of a practical reason why you're here, put that all aside for one second. And I want to ask you, do you want to say yes to this proposal? Do you want to enter into a marriage covenant in a cosmic way with the God who made you, who loves you, who sees you in your brokenness and yet has, has done all of it to cross that chasm that exists because of our brokenness, because of our sin, because of what we've done. And he's, he's erased all of it by the blood of his son and he invites you into that relationship. If that's something you don't have, but something you want, Right now, I want you to raise your hand. God bless you, and God bless you. Any others before we pray? Anybody else want to say yes to Jesus' proposal of a reconciled relationship with the almighty creator God? And joy Everlasting. Okay, for those of you who raised your hands, I want you to, whether it's out loud or silently in your heart, I want you to repeat this prayer. Jesus, I accept your offer of love today. I recognize that I've been looking for love in the wrong places. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Thank you that you considered me of so much value that you were willing to die for me. I accept, I accept your sacrifice on my behalf. And I submit myself to you as my Lord and Savior. Please help me by your Holy Spirit to walk in your ways. and to learn to love you as you loved me. I look forward to the day when I get to stand before you face to face. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For those of you that prayed that prayer with me, please come talk to me or someone that looks like they know what they're doing and tell someone. And right now we're going to enter into a time of just response and just thanksgiving and praise and celebration because because if you're someone who's been walking with Jesus for a while you know that you know that whole A to Z thing. You know that it's it's just that's just where we need to get back to. You know that reviewing your marriage vows is something that's valuable and can lift you from where you're at today. And so if you are someone who would like to receive prayer uh, Kai and Kelly are going to be up front on, the, on these side pews up front here. Um, love for you to feel encouraged to come receive prayer, um, especially if you pray that prayer with me today. Otherwise, let's just praise the Lord and give our, give our shouts, give our celebrations to him. Amen.